You're about to listen to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders and for coders about all aspects of life as a developer. I'm Will, the curmudgeonly experienced developer. And I'm Beach, the optimistic newbie developer. To another episode of Complete Developer Podcast. Welcome. Before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? I have been fighting with some... Well, I wouldn't say fighting with it. I've, I've been cleaning up some very old code um, where somebody really didn't seem to understand what strongly typed languages were for. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing a lot of you know, ID columns in the database that are long ints, and they've cast everything as int, which means, of hmm. course, when you hit a certain point, stuff yeah. blows up. And the ones that are going to experience the pain first is going to be our biggest clients. I'm also seeing a lot of um, strings that, you know, it's like, oh, it returns this as a string, but it's actually an integer. And it's, and then they're expecting that, oh, you'll get it out of the database and then you'll cast it to the appropriate type because we're too lazy. And so I've been cleaning that kind of stuff up. I can see where you are coming from. Um, you know, that, that was probably an easy way for them to do it. Yeah, it was. And they also, you know, I think at that point, that code is old enough that it was probably former... VB programmers, and so they could get away with going, oh, it's an int now? Mm. And some of those cases are, you know, hey, we'll call it a string, but you know, we'll add it to something, and, and you know, the typecasting will take care of it. Whatever happened with VB? I mean, are there still people that do VB? Yes. Uh, okay. Got a pretty good friend that's got a huge VB app that he needs ported sometime. Um, and there's also still VB.net around as well. Uh, and I knew that, and I've heard a lot about... Um, Lack of support for VB.net. Yeah. Like, it's, like the fear of lack of support, I should say. Yeah, that's always been kind of a threat hanging over their heads. And also there was a lot of stuff that came out um, when it initially hit the scene where it was very obvious that people that were programming in C Sharp were getting paid better. It was about 10 to 15 grand a year mm. uh, pay difference. Like this is you know probably 2003, 2004 time frame. And so you had a mass exodus, plus they broke backward compatibility on all kinds of stuff anyway. And so everybody was like, why not just, why not just jump ship? Yeah. And, and so it's, it's not a dead language. It's, I mean, it still has a thriving community. There's certain things that are a lot easier in mm-hmm. it and a lot uh, more eloquent and clean, but it's a little bit more niche now, I think, than C sharp is. And sometimes I wonder if F sharp is going to whip C sharp one of these days. Um, so anyway, that's what I've been fighting with is, you know, where somebody doesn't understand that, you know, the reason we have this big honking IDE that eats half the memory on the system is so that we can get that type checking and we can get all these other things in line as we're working mm-hmm. so that we don't make dumb mistakes like, oh, I don't know, having a, a variable that's too big to go into an end and trying to put it in there anyway. Yeah. Because that's not something you're going to catch until it's running. Mm-hmm. And... And so I've, you know, I've just done that work to uh, put some stability improvements in there. So that's what I've been doing all day today. What about you? Well, uh, I've been fighting Audacity, to be honest with you. Um, oh. I really wouldn't say fighting it. Um, You've just been getting beat by it. That's pretty much it. Uh, it I didn't know that you hit it back. <laughs> it, uh, it crashed on me last week. And uh, if you guys read the show notes, you'll see the little editor's note that I put in there about uh, getting the episode out um, later than normal. 
Uh, we normally like to release at midnight on Thursdays. That way, people who listen in the mornings, will it will already have downloaded to their iTunes or Android or whatever. And, um, and they can download over their personal wireless instead of on the mobile wireless on the way to work or something. Yeah, exactly. Like We, we try to set that up for that, but uh, what happened to me was I was working, um, and I had saved my progress when I started, but Audacity crashed, and they have a recovery function, and it recovered it. It just didn't recover all of it, so there were like holes in the yeah. audio. And uh, I had to start all over again. Yeah, was, I remember that because I sent you a message. I was like, well, there's a couple little art, audio artifacts that I guess we need to figure out how to get rid of next time. And you know, like, I had no idea that you'd gone through this. Yeah. <laughs> because otherwise it was fine. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, like, the way you worded your reply was like, did I just, did I say something? And I, didn't, I had no idea that you'd been up all night fighting with it. Yeah. Because you, know, you do the audio editing and you're... That you enjoy that, and I look at it, and I'm like, God, my ears aren't that good. Sorry. Yeah. I think you said that, and I, I think I wrote back, yeah, I was up till 7. Like, yeah. It was like around 11 or 12 when I wrote back to you, because I'd just woken up. Yeah. And then it got you know more complicated, because I was like, you were up till 7 p.m.? Yeah. I'm like, no, 7 a.m. Bragging rights? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was... That was uh, definitely some some entertainment seeing you fight with audacity. Really, that's what I've all I worked on last week, and then um, I kind of took Friday just to rest. Yeah, and then uh, came down here Saturday. And, I mean, yeah, we pair programmed for what four and a half five hours on Saturday. Yeah, when we yeah. got a lot done, and yeah. I learned a lot, and I think I even tweeted about some stuff. Yeah, you got into inversion of control and. TypeScript and you know, JavaScript module patterns and data binding you know, with Knockout. What else did you do? There was a whole bunch of stuff. I don't know. The, the one thing that really stuck with me was the, the bundles. I mean, I liked oh, that. Oh, yeah. Bundling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's right handy. All right. So uh, I guess it's about that time. Uh, yep. Roll that glorious music. Your favorite music of all time. Exactly. So this week in IOTs, I have something kind of interesting. Um, It is a research study that actually, according to the title of the article, slams the pie in the sky predictions for IOT. It's it's really interesting. Uh starts off talking about how the Internet of Things is being overhyped and that uh, the distortions from that could be very damaging. You mean sort of like the Internet was? Yeah. I mean, there is – it's basically predicting a IoT bubble. Well, yeah. I mean, that actually – that makes some sense. That happened with the Internet you know, back in the day. Oh, it was going to change everything. And, yeah, it did change everything, but we also have online lynch mobs, essentially. Yeah. And all the, you know, we've had a lot of cultural changes we've had to work through. And it'll be the same thing with IoT. Exactly. And that's, that's kind of what this is getting into. Also, it's talking about the, the financial predictions are, um, basically it's saying that the financial predictions are over the top. You know why there are people involved in financial forecasting, right? 
Somewhat. You want to give us a better explanation? Sure. Um, because weathermen need somebody to make them look respectable. <laughs> I like it. That's good. That's good. Well, um, this comes from the Beecham Research CEO, uh, who is Robin Duke Woolley. And uh, he basically is criticizing a lot of the what he claims are false promises and uh, potentially damaging predictions. And I will post a link to the article. You can read the full thing for yourself and uh, leave us some comments in the show notes. Let us know what you think of this because I bet we could get a good discussion going. Alright, if you can uh, picture Darth Vader walking in with a bunch of stormtroopers behind him, we're about to talk about uh, death marches. Yeah, and that's actually what was happening in Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's that sort of thing. And uh, so we're going to kind of talk about that and how, um, you know, what a death march project is and how that affects developers and some strategies you can use to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit different than, you know, the... We did an, ep- an episode uh, not too long ago about interruptions, and a lot of the strategies somewhat overlap, although there's less that you're ex- actually capable of doing in a death march project because the situation is much worse. Exactly, and um, also this is something that I do believe we promised a few episodes back that we would do a death march episode. Yeah. Let's start off with what is a death march, and uh, Wikipedia, I mean Wikipedia... Define. You got Star Wars on the brain, man. <laughs> Wikipedia. I, I know. I, I I cannot wait for that movie to come out. I I have good feelings about what Disney is going to do. Well, I mean, I saw the previews and I got chills, yeah. and I never got those with. All right. So Wikipedia defines a death march as in project management, a death march is a project where the members feel it is destined to fail. Or requires a stretch of unsustainable work, overwork, the general feel of the project reflects that of an actual death march because members of the project are forced to continue the project by their superiors against their better judgment. And that is from Wikipedia. Um, And I actually don't like the term death march uh, because I think it trivializes actual death marches. Mm Mm-hmm. It's, you know, look, it's not a death march. It's just crap. It's just large amounts of crap. It's a manure wagon. So a little a little surprise for you, since you're fond of doing this to me, uh, the Urban Dictionary definition of death march. Uh, in software development industry, a death march is a dysphemism or description for an, the end phase of a project when a hard do- deadline has to be met, often to meet an arbitrary ship date leaked to the press and or the shareholders. Often, if a project is off schedule due to mismanagement, as many are, said management will ask team members to work especially grueling hours, weekends, sometimes with a straight face, or by attempting to throw enough bodies at the problem with varying results, often causing burnout. It is also common for developers to subsist on flat food 
while in the midst of a death march. And flat food is described as... Pizza. Yeah. Lots of pizza. That sounds actually pretty much accurate. Um, at least the death marches I've been on, a lot of them have um, you know, been the result of pretty um, horrendously stupid planning decisions or mm-hmm. uh, situations where people basically thought that, okay, I can plan this whole project and then I can hire like 30 developers fresh and bring them in. Well, that goes and back just, to the whole idea of the man hours. Yeah, it's, I mean, well, it's like nine women can't have a baby in a month. Yeah, like I said, the man hours involved. Yeah, or woman hours. Oh, yeah, but they'll, they'll yeah. throw, you know, it's it's the, it's almost a strategy that, you know, in, in military terms, it's just like a wall of human beings coming in something, and it doesn't, it doesn't really work very well. It's characterized by... Like the Urban Dictionary said, long hours over an extended period of time. Right. So it's not a death march if you're doing this. You know, if it's like three days in a row of, you know, grueling hours because there's there's a deadline and, you know, everything's going to be better after that, and, you know, and it legitimately is, mm-hmm. that's not a death march. No, this death would marches. a death march would be like a month of grueling hours. Yeah. Or, well, even a, you know, even a week. I mean, when it gets to the point where it is completely taking over your life, and it's, you know, obviously three days is, is still massively inconvenient. One day of ridiculous hours is pretty yeah. disruptive. But it's it's the fact that it's a continual um, overwork. So it's it's almost, honestly, I think the, the a good way to put it would be um, it's like drug use versus drug addiction. Or it's like an accountant at tax season. Yeah, but, I mean, they know that there's an end. Exactly, and that, that's what I was about to get to, is like, in a lot of professions, you'll have times where you have to work extra. I know, even work in the hospital, especially in, in counseling and stuff, uh, we would have days where people would call out. You know, people get sick, things happen, you yeah. know, and there, there would be a, a day or two where I would have to work an extra four or five hours, and, you know, just to pick up for the fact that Somebody was sick, yeah, and things like that, and that wouldn't be considered a death march. Right, it's a death march when you don't have enough people to do the mm-hmm. tasks. Um, you've got way too much to do. You have uh, technical problems that you're beating your head against. You have a lot of interruptions. You have a lot of um, stuff going on that's making productivity go through the floor, uh, including a lot of personnel problems. Mm-hmm. But it's it's really characterized by being too much. So it's it's one of those, the dose determines the poison things. Yeah, and it's, it's characterized by timelines that are too aggressive to actually meet. Um, you know, in addition to a lot of burnout and a lot of turnover. Yeah, and a lot of times it's not even the timeline so much as it is um, extraneous crap. Mm-hmm. Or uh, poor design decisions. Um, I worked at a company that the, the last you know serious death march I was on that was not self-inflicted, you know where I was working a full-time job and working on a side project and doing something else. Um, this company actually had something that could be done in the time that they wanted to do it, but instead of doing the code in the place that it made sense, they decided to do things in the data act or the database itself that 
really were not appropriate for the database. So, like, it was uh, one of the things that we had to do was a build materials system that, you know, it was nested arbitrarily deep. So, like, you make product A and you make product B out of these raw materials, and then product C is made out of that, and then there's product D, and you mix that, and you get product E, and it's that whole chain, right? Mm -hmm. Well, each of those bills of materials, H level was versioned, the whole thing was versioned, and we were doing that stuff in SQL. Like, yeah, it was awful. You guys can't see my face, but... Yeah, and and so it was, Uh, I was pretty frequently, I was getting there at 6.30 in the morning, and I was leaving at 11.30 at night, and driving an hour. Why didn't you set up a bed there? Well, because there was nowhere to sleep there. I I, I looked at some, you know, tried to figure out some way to do it. Because the other thing is I was hourly, and so I was cleaning house on making money. Oh, um, nice. That, but, is, that is a benefit of... Well, being a contractor. But yeah. they had a lot of employees there. Um, the other thing is it tends to, you tend to get a lot of inattention to... Um, mm-hmm. Not just personnel problems, but the problems that you're causing in people's lives. So I was, you know, I got, um, I got a carpal tunnel. I remember. Or that, you know, all the pain and all that stuff. And, I mean, when I quit that job, I, I think I threw those pads away. I never need, I haven't needed them since. And you think about the way I work right now. How, how you know, how many hours I work. It's, you know, it's 60 to 80 hours a week I'm in front of the computer working right now between, you know, everything I've got going on, and I don't get carpal tunnel. Because the other thing they did is they, they threw a lot of bodies at the problem, and they didn't have seating enough for all of them. So everybody had space for their laptop, and you could not even set a drink down by your laptop. So your 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 elbows were against your ribs all day. And it, it was just, it was awful. And you, you couldn't be productive because there was noise, there were speakerphones, there was all that stuff. And so it was... A, a true death march, as I like to think of them, is really the end result of a lot of other things. And that's that's kind of what we're going to be discussing here. So the first thing that a, a death march project indicates is, and pardon, the, pardon my French, but it's piss poor management. Mm-hmm. It indicates somebody really, not just slightly dropped the ball, they didn't slightly miss an estimate, somebody really, really screwed up. In, in a horrendous fashion, like you missed it by an order of magnitude. Um, and, you know, it also indicates a lot of you know, inability to focus on what's important, and which is also a management concern, and inability to prioritize things, and inability to push back on the client and go, okay, this, you know, this isn't possible. Uh, it typically includes a lot of poor change management, a lot of poor... Um, decision making as far as priorities go, like for instance, you you have a client that they want a new feature and it's the middle of the project, and you don't force them to prioritize that against exi- existing features. You just add it in, and you keep doing that as. You know, well, we talked about this before in talking about being a manager. Is you know the. It yeah. goes back to the the umbrella versus the yeah the funnel, and you know a, a good manager is yeah. This was more like you know, instead of being a crap umbrella or a crap funnel, this was a crap funnel with like an oscillating fan under it, <laughs> and like 
AIDS and razor blades and death, you know, raining down on all the other developers. It was pretty, it was pretty horrific, really, uh, you know, how that thing worked. And that's, that's actually been a characteristic of several. I've, I've been on three or four, you know, like serious death march projects at this point. Now, if I find that I'm on one, I'll just quit. Well, how, how do, um, nine to fivers, and by nine to fivers, I mean the developers that, Development is a job for them, not a passion, a craftsmanship. Like for you, for me, um, I would assume for a lot of our listeners that development is a passion. It's you listen, you're listening to a podcast about it. You do this at home on side projects and stuff. But there are those out there that development is a nine to five job for. Yeah, they. Um, How do they react to death march situations? They leave. Um. Well, they either leave or if they're stuck staying, they really don't get anything done. And most people really don't anyway yeah. uh, in that situation. I mean, I, what I was just wondering is, you know, obviously they can't physically force you to stay. Right. But they'll threaten you. Okay. They won't make it obvious. Um, you know, because there's, there's rules about this sort of stuff, but, eh, you know... It's kind of like living in a city where the mob rules. It's like, okay, there's laws on the books, but are those really what's happening? That's not the way it is. Yeah. Um, another thing that, that comes out of all this, of course, is rapid team growth, because one thing that a lot of managers will do, you know, they've already sunk a lot of money into the project. They may have gotten like half up front, and they're getting the other half when they deliver. And so they don't want to lose that other half and go to court to, you know, for the other half to get recovered when they don't succeed. And so they try to cut their losses, and the way they do that is they throw more people at the project, thinking that, okay, if I can just get enough firepower, I can fix this. And so you end up with teams that are way oversized, really, for the management structure. you got too many people for, for the managers to actually manage and for the infrastructure to take and for... You, know, you just can't you, you can't pump the project through there, and so you'll see that a lot. And sometimes that can actually cause death march projects too, um, as the team expands because new developers. You get a new guy on the team. Well, he's got to he's got to know how you do things, where the code is. He's got all these problems. You know, the new you know his box is just set up. It doesn't have permissions. There's all these things that eat time. And I've I've seen things where they'll throw a bunch of developers on there, new ones, and they can't get anything done, and so they throw more. Yeah, rather than. Because management's disconnected. Because management is screwing up. They're the ones that got you into this problem. Um, it seems to me like when they bring a new developer onto a project, they need to schedule schedule that into the project. and They do. And say, okay, we're going to take this person who's been the senior dev that's been with the project for a while, and we're going to assign them a day or two to help this on board. Yeah, on board. Yeah, the new well person. you you figure that in your burn rate when you're going through, you know, what you should be doing. If you're if you're good at this. Uh, if you're terrible, you won't. Yeah. Um, another thing that you'll see a lot is a disconnect between sales and development. This uh, the place I've actually seen this most um, is where sales and development are not allowed to talk. That's why I always try to make friends with the sales guys is because we can absolutely ruin each other if we don't know what the other one's doing. And the other one doesn't, you know, if, if we're an abstraction to the other side, that tends to lead to death march projects because the sales guys, for one thing, they don't know you. 
and they don't know what you're capable of. You're an abstraction to them. You're some dude. And it's it's the way that, well, I mean, it's the kind of mindset, honestly, that we have towards uh, factory workers in the third world. They're, you know, people don't tend to care because they're an abstraction over there. It's not, you know, it's not the guy next door that you talk to every day. And yeah. we can, and it, it kind of goes both ways, and you get this almost ratcheting effect as the developers get ticked off at sales, and then sales gets ticked off at the developers. And what it really is is the management layer in between. It's not that the human beings can't get along; it's that you got fifteen layers of management. And I could see that where a little bit of knowledge could be dangerous, where a salesperson that knows what's possible but not what's practical. Yeah. Could say, oh yeah, we can we can do that, and then we can totally do speech to text. Give us ten minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and the other thing, I you know, I've I another place you'll see this is like if a startup grows really rapidly, um, because there's there's a set of initial conditions that happen um, when they grow really rapidly. A lot of times they just got funding, so you have the situation where okay, they've scaled up. So operations are more complex. You have more stakeholders. You have your management right before that basically being tied up and trying to get funding. Um, and then you have a whole bunch of people coming on to the team because now you have funding mm-hmm. and you're less productive. And so it it's very easy to get a collapse almost and get, get a death march type situation set up, if that makes sense. So that's, that's a case that you'll see that. But you'll notice in all these cases that the chain of responsibility goes through management. This is a management problem. It really is. And um, now it can be, you know, developer problems can exacerbate this. But the fact that, you know, if management is not resilient to that, there, there's no developer that can help you. Well, yeah, and it's also something that a developer issue could could start the snowball effect that leads to it if management is not there to recognize and stop that from continuing to go. Some ways to avoid death march projects from the outset uh, that are for developers are to ask what the expectations are regarding hours. You know, when you start a job, what are the overtime, uh, the comp time while interviewing? Yeah, and that's that's even important to ask when you're doing contract work because I sometimes they lie and then sometimes they um, they don't know. The uh, company I last worked at, it was the Death March. They said it would be forty five to fifty hours a week. And it wasn't. It was closer to eighty plus driving. But yeah, you you have to ask about this stuff up front because part of it is getting expectations. Part of it is letting the client know that. You're, you know, if if they're going to try to screw somebody, they're going to try to screw somebody that's green and that doesn't understand how this stuff works and doesn't understand what can go wrong. They're not going to hire somebody who's wary. And unfortunately, I did not look wary enough because, frankly, my finances were in a, not a very good place um, related to moving. And as a result, I was not as selective as I otherwise would have been. Though another thing to watch out for is uh, places that say that they work hard and play hard. Um, now, in Will's notes, he says they don't do the latter, but from my experience, outside of the development community, it's more they do one or the other. 
Well, the other thing is they don't work hard because they don't work smart. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, what it, what it really comes down to is we work a lot. Yeah. And we think that's hard work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's great and all, but, you know, work actually has a definition in physics, if you recall. That definition is not satisfied by attempting to move an immovable object. Unless you have an unstoppable force. Right. In which, <laughs> in which case, you know, you, yeah. So, yeah, if they, if they say that they work hard and play hard, that, that's almost a verbal cue for me to move along. Um, because I've, I really have not seen a lot of companies that actually do the playing hard. Well, they just, the whole like, concept well, doesn't make sense. Well, do you play at work? Yeah. I'm like, because my play is done outside of working. I, a person saying I work hard and I play hard makes sense. A company saying we work hard and play hard well, does not. Actually, a company saying it does make sense. Uh, really? Yep, totally. It doesn't to me. The so employees work hard and the employer plays hard. <laughs> um, From that perspective, that makes perfect and, sense. Uh, so when you hear that, they are telling the truth. It's just you need to be a little careful about whether the truth they're saying is the truth you think you're hearing. Um, now, I mean, I'll say this. In the last few years working in sales, they have really great incentives. Incentives like going to hockey games, football games, things like that, baseball games, going like having really big, fun Christmas parties and stuff like that. In that world, some people might consider that playing hard. Right. Um, but but in me, development, that's not really a thing. Like, it's you'll occasionally see places where they play video games. They'll have like a video game console or something at the office, but nobody ever does that. Or you know you have to be you have to feel very secure in your job to go and play a video game on the clock. Yeah, and most people just can't quite swing that, and so they don't they don't ever play hard. But the work hard thing is not ever allowed to slide, and so you just you just end up working hard, and it's not really you're working hard; you're just working a lot of hours. I don't know. I I I see these places that. And I've even seen them in places that I've been looking at where it's, you know, we have a air hockey table at... Foosball. Work. It's always a foosball table. I swear there's, like, the places I have worked that have had some of the most dysfunctional crap going on have had a foosball table. Really? And, you know, air hockey is another thing, too, but I think foosball tables are a little cheaper. Well, I'm just saying this is what I have seen. One of the places I looked at said we have an air hockey table in our office. And I'm like, okay. That sounds awful. You think about that. It's like, okay, so what's really going to happen when you have that? Okay, either A, it's taking up space. Well, it is taking up space. It's matter. Yeah. (laughs) Pedantic nerds. Yeah. I I just about went full med student on that. Um, It's taking up space. It also makes a crap ton of noise. And oh, by the way, when you go and you play that game, it's obvious to everybody that you're not working. So who does it? The people that are really well connected. It almost becomes a thing where people signal their power by the fact that they're doing that. Like, it's not useful for the people that are just trying to work and trying to make a good impression and all that. Because... No, it's not. And it's more of a thing that, you know, if you have a lot of office parties... Yeah. And stuff? Yeah, I can see that. But to be honest... Why would you have an office party in a cube farm in IT? Exactly. Because, okay, who's going to be there? 
If you're going to people have that haven't signed a non-disclosure agreement, people that haven't signed the HIPAA form, people with oh I don't know USB devices that they can plug in and log keystrokes because everybody's drunk at the office party and nobody's paying attention. That doesn't happen. You know, like people are not going to have an office party in the cube farm because there's too many risks. Like I said, the the only legitimate use I could see for that is for like office parties and things like that. Like, if you're an American and you work in a foreign country and the only people that you can really talk to are the your co-workers because you don't speak the language, then, yeah, that makes sense to have stuff like that in an office. Yeah, but even in the office, that doesn't make sense. Like, you have it in a rec room somewhere. Yeah, yeah, to have a rec room at the office, like I the guess. the places I've worked, it was, like, right next to the cube farm where the developers were. That's just a distraction. Yeah, that's all it is. But it's one of those distractions. Did people play that during the workday? Yes. Well-connected people that were friends with upper management and knew their jobs were secure could play it, and they could goof off during the day. Now, granted, other people goofed off, too, but they didn't disrupt everybody else. They went out and they had a smoke break, or they, you know, walked down to the store and got a Coke or something. Um, But, yeah, this is what I refer to as the foosball table anti-pattern. You understand what an anti-pattern is, right? It's, you know, a pattern of behavior is a pattern because it's an effective way of approaching something. An anti-pattern is the opposite of that. It's a way to create crap, create problems. Yeah, so basically what we're getting at is when you are looking at a potential employer, because remember, when you're interviewing, they're interviewing you and you're interviewing them. And when you're looking at a potential employer, this is something to seriously take into consideration is if they have this setup. Is this the type of environment that you want to work in? Well, and it's also, it's almost like a totem because it's one of those things that they they buy that going, developers are stupid. They're going to see that, oh, we can play games here and they're not going to question the other stuff we do. And that's that's been my perception. Now, the place I work now, we do have a video game console. We have an Xbox One. People play Destiny downstairs. I don't. I'm contract. I'm hourly, so I'm not going to do that. But there's people that do. You know, they have that there, and, you know, people will blow off steam, but it, it, it works, and the reason it works is is because, okay, it's like 70 feet away from the developers, and you can close two doors. Well, see, that makes sense. Having a rec room makes yeah. sense. You know, in other industries, I know that as developers, we tend to not be as um, physical. So other other industries having a, a basketball court. Yeah, well, a basketball court or a, you know, they'll have a gym, they'll have some kind of you know, something, and that, like, amenities are not a problem. It's when that is thrown out as proof that you have a healthy work-life balance, that we have a foosball table. It's like, so your definition of a healthy work-life balance is that I play when I'm in the office, which either means I'm not working or you expect me to work when I'm not in the office or you're wasting money. If it's like right there in the office because you're distracting everybody. And so it's the foosball table for me is one of those things that I look at and I go, you know, it's, it's not like it's, I basically grade potential employers like on a a three red flag thing. So like I do potential dates. It's very similar. It's a two sided relationship. Of course, uh, I will say this. There are certain things that are absolute no's. There's certain things that are three red flags, right? Yeah. Like, how can I put this? The foosball table, for me, is two red flags. And if they've got a foosball table, I can almost guarantee they're going to have another red flag. Yeah. Just because um, of the style, the type of place that would have one. 
Yeah, because they think the gimmicks will work. And that's that's been kind of a recurring thing that I've learned. But I, I do tend to kind of look at those things. And the offices with an open floor plan with a foosball table in the middle, a bunch of people that look fearful, that's a stripper with a neck tattoo, man. That's like that's like four red flags. It's like that's not even that's not even a thing that you it's not just that you don't consider it, it's that you want to get away now. So you know, given this, and I guess it's probably pretty obvious that my recommendation when you run into a death march project is to get out. Um, there's there's no fixing it. And so I, th- I thought I would kind of list some reasons here uh, why that you don't you don't want to mess with this. Um, the first one is is that death march projects are almost always failures. Well, every definition that I saw when looking them up, now I, I know you wrote the show notes, but I did some research myself. And every definition I said was, it's a project that the developers feel is failing. And so you don't want to have on your resume a massively failing project because they, the other thing that they tend to do is they don't fail slightly where it's like recoverable. They fail bad. It's like it, it gets rolled out and there is a massive identity theft. The way that they. Mess. Yeah. Um, I've been waiting for a reason to bring that up on the show. Yeah. Well. I don't know that they had a death march thing. I, I think I, I don't think so either. I just wanted to mention it as a, a identity theft. Yeah, you will see a lot of massive data breaches and things like that because people cut corners. When it's okay, I've worked eighty hours this week. It's Saturday, and I haven't seen my kid or my wife all week. And oh yeah, I should check this for SQL injection, but I want to go home. And management's too disconnected to know any better. Anyway, I'm sure it won't be a problem. And then what happens? Well, I burn out and I quit. And a year later, some you know somebody from Anonymous finds it, and the hole gets punched, and and that sort of thing. It's it's just essentially you are throwing bombs into the future if you are <laughs> working on a, on a death march project. Um, another thing that death march projects tend to have is they they tend to have large systemic problems that can't be resolved because you know if there is a structural problem, there's so many people throwing more. Uh, more gasoline on the fire that you can't put it out. And so it will, it will just continue to get worse and whatever work you do to it to try to try to resolve it and try to get it better, it can't be fixed. Uh, death March projects often result from management of a failing company doubling down and usually proceed downsizing. So like they, you know, they double down on the project for now and they burn everybody out and then everybody that had a hard time and didn't totally tow the company line gets canned Mm -hmm. once the project is done anyway and they've got their money because hey they're they're going to get sued pretty soon for when that project finally does blow up in production which is usually where it happens this tends to happen a lot with uh with publicly traded companies that are doing a lot of really short-sighted stuff and there's there's just no there's no fixing this they also oddly enough even though they are taking on all this risk they tend to be very risk averse and so you can't use new tech. So if you have something that might be able to fix it because they're already, basically they're already afraid that they're totally screwed, they're not going to take a risk of getting screwed worse. Oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense because it's the idea of risk management. It, I should say it's more, it's like the converse of risk management in that it's... It's what happens when risk management doesn't. Yes, Exactly. You know, the other thing that, that tends to happen is that when these projects fail, it's like, let's say you're still at the same, if you're at the company 
and there's a death march project, but you're not on it, that's still actually a good reason to leave. Um, because when that project fails, you're going to have several things happen. One is, is it's going to impact revenue, and you're not going to be able to control your exit from the company. Um, the other thing that will happen is, is you'll have a large number of people leave or some restructuring, and a whole bunch of people come in and the company culture changes. So if you enjoy it now, and there's a death march project next door, it's probably not going to be the same after. You're going to have new management coming in. They're going to be implementing a bunch of rules to try to make that not ever happen again. But those rules will be put on the people that didn't really cause the problem. Well, yeah, because the people that caused the problem are the management that they let go. Well, they may not have even let those managers go. Um, if they're crafty and they're well-connected, they may have gotten promoted. So, um, you know, given all this, you know, we, we do have a list of some things management can do to help. Um, you know, sometimes you're a developer and you're sort of in a managerial role or you get thrust into one and you are on a death march. Such project. as being a team lead? Yeah, being a team lead or I've even seen cases where they'll, they will have so much turnover above because there's all this churn up top and that's what's actually causing the problem below. Mm-hmm. And they're making, you know, people are making short-sighted decisions at a managerial level to try to protect themselves from decisions being made at the executive level. And they're trying to prove their effectiveness, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And so they get their the people under them are in a death march, but then they get canned, and somebody else gets moved up from that department. And you may actually have management listening now. And so, I could not imagine moving up or moving laterally even into a death march. I just, I'm sure there are people that probably specialize in oh, fixing yeah. that problem. Well, the thing is, is it's it's a gamble because if you pull it off and you fix it. You know, you talk about some serious cred, they're going to look at you as, you know, potentially executive material. But there's not a whole lot of those. So there, yeah. there's a few things that, that uh, new management or, you know, management can do. If you if you find yourself in this situation, obviously you want to avoid it. And it's probably better that you exit beforehand. But, you know, if you've decided or if the economy is tanked, which happens and you don't have a lot of other choices, there's a few things you can do. One thing you can do is, is kind of push back against your own management. When they're asking for unreasonable things, this goes back to the whole thing of being a manager that we discussed in this. Yeah, time. exactly. You get to be, a, you have to be a crap umbrella. You've got to keep those unreasonable requests off your team. And sometimes that that means you got to get hit with a lot of crap. Yeah, well, and it, you, you got to just you have to deal with it. That's one of the reasons I don't like middle management. Yeah, is because you're in a lose lose situation, but if you're going to pull this thing out, you, you pretty much have to. You, you and pulling things out like that and surviving middle management is how you get to upper management. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a culling process. And, it's, you know, can you can you do that and not flinch? And, oh, you may, you're very likely to get fired, by the way. Another thing you can do as a, manage, as a manager is help your developers um, get some good habits around their workload. Like, when you see that guy staying late, make him go home. I mean, seriously, like shut off his Active Directory account if you have to. No, he just, can't work. This is something that, that we're doing with the podcast is to help developers understand to build their own good habits. But managers can also take from this, from the podcast, how to help their developers create those good habits. Right. And I mean, that's, that's kind of the idea is, you know, being a good mentor, like you need to, you, you need to get your developers to the point where they're not working 80 hour weeks. Go, look, this isn't acceptable because one thing that will happen in these environments is there's always that one guy that doesn't have a life. You know, he's, he's single, he's 45, you know, he doesn't have any family living near him. He has no hobbies or he just watches TV 
and that guy will work 80-something hours a week. And the guy that's got two kids that are under the age of five, if he does that for a few weeks, he's going to get a divorce paper from his wife because it's wrecking her life, too. It's wrecking the kids' lives. And so you've got to put a bottle on You just just got to take that one guy, and you got to say, you need to go home and do something else because everybody else is feeling like they have to work as hard as he does or else their you know their neck is on the line when the axe falls and so you you, know, you got to manage that one guy and you got to manage creating a culture where that sort of overwork is not acceptable now it may be a culture of okay we work 65 hours a week but at least you know start whittling that down and start pushing back on that cuz you also have to push back on your developers and you'll also have to make sure that they are staying on task while they're on the clock. If you have them set up where they're working forty hours a week, but they're spending five hours a day on Facebook. Oh, and this is this is where a good balance comes in, and maybe we need to have an episode on this on you know work life balance, not so much on balance between outside of work and inside of work, but on how to balance your work day. Because sometimes you work really hard on something, and you just need a mental break. Yeah. But a mental break, or you will be, have a mental break. Yeah, if but, you don't. Yeah, exactly. But a mental break shouldn't be five hours on Facebook. It should be walk down to the store to buy a coke to clear your head, or you know, right. even getting on Facebook shouldn't be a problem. But you get on for five, ten minutes. I mean, at the most, yeah. Th- to be honest with you, I'm on Facebook a lot. I leave it on in the background and stuff. But I could not imagine just being on there unless I'm chatting with someone. Yeah. But, I mean, you'll see people do that, and especially in a stressful work environment, because look at what happens. They feel completely powerless, right? It's, I'm going to be stuck working 80 hours a week no matter what I do. And so how motivated am I to be effective? Because what happens if I am effective? I still have to work 80 hours a week, and now I'm working harder. And so you're not, you're you're disincentivizing. Well, it, it seems like this is where if you do your job and you get it done in 65 hours, you still don't get to go home. Right. You just get part of somebody else's. Exactly. And that's um, that's where it becomes a problem is you're, like you said, you're, you're disincentivized to work hard. Yeah. Whereas if you say, if you know, all right, this is really about an 80-hour job, but if I can get this done, I can go home early. Yeah. Well, of course, well, you got to early, be- but I can go home. I don't have to work an 80-hour week. I can work a 65-hour week. Yeah, and I mean, you got to be careful with that because you don't want people cutting corners. You've got to make sure that there's good quality. You know, so it, you, you get into a balancing act, which is one of the reasons why I never, ever want to do this is mm-hmm. because there's just too many, you know, too many different vectors for problems to come in. But you're going to want your developers to, to go home at a reasonable hour, and that kind of leads into the last point, which is, is you, you've got to make sure that you do not reward or encourage workaholism. It's not just the thing of, okay, this guy's working a crap ton of hours and everybody feels like they have to do that because he's doing it because they're not a team player. Because people, if they like their coworkers and they take pride in their work, those are the people that get screwed the worst in this kind of situation. Um, but the other thing is, is you don't need to go, oh, hey, he worked 80 hours a week and he did a really good job. Let's give him a reward. Because what did you just do? You just showed everybody else that... Exactly. That you know, the thing about it is, is the reward for for actually having a team that gets through a death march project is it never happens again. I was going to say, realistically, a death march project should be what happens when something gets screwed up. Yeah, although... Like, it, it should never happen, but it, it should be when something happens 
you know, externally that messes things up. Yeah, and it really shouldn't be a normal course of action. How critical is your job? You know, I've seen companies that manufactured a substance that is basically poisonous that's consumed, and they had a death march project. Okay, what happens if that project is delayed by a week? Nobody dies. Yeah. Your job is really not that important in the grand scheme of things. Like, it's not worth overworking and going through a divorce and ruining your kids' lives to get a product out. Think about it this way. Let's say you're working on medical software. It's not going to cost lives to delay that, but it may save lives. Right. Well, and that's, that, that's, that's kind of the attitude that I think is, is good to have is it's not critical to get it out at a certain time for, you know, people will die if I don't get this out. Right. But it can ruin lives not to, to. to not put the effort in or to take shortcuts and to cut corners. Yeah, or to overwork. Because yeah. also, you know, bear in mind, okay, if let's say that the software you're developing is critical. Mm-hmm. Okay, people die if you don't get delivered on time. Which, by the way, that's a management screw-up, too. Yeah. Somebody fouled up if a slip deadline in software kills people. Because what does the software industry have to the degree that no other industry has? Slipped deadlines. I mean, other than communist five-year plans, we're pretty much bad about hitting the mark. I mean, so you, you shouldn't be in a position where this is your is your chief problem. Yeah. And I think that kind of sums up, really, the yeah. whole episode. And I know that this sounded really negative Nancy the entire time about Death March projects, but they suck. They're awful. And honestly, as a developer, if you run across one, you probably should kind of get away from it. Uh, yeah, it's, avoid them. Yeah, it's and well know what a death march project is. Like yeah. we said at the beginning, it's not, you know, having to work overtime or having to work extra for three or four days right before release to get every little last detail done. Even then, that's kind of a screw up. But yeah, that's, that that's a screw up. But that that is not a death march. Right. A, a death march is really like eighty hours a week. Um, on a regular basis. Yeah. I would, you know, I would almost say much over 50 mm-hmm. a week on a regular basis is, it's just not sustainable, especially with commutes. Now, it might be, if you're working from home, yeah, you know, you might do that because that, plus your commute, you know, a 40-hour work week plus your commute is probably in that range. Yeah. And, you know, this also is not true if it's your own company. Oh, that's that's. If you're one of the owners, you know that's a whole other thing because there's a large upside Mm -hmm. if you succeed, and you know there's a different incentive structure. There's also more control, yeah, and some other things that that kind of make this less psychologically damaging. So that pretty much covers the topic, and that wraps it up very nicely. So, um, Will, what do you have for us this week for tricks of the trade? Well, this week I've actually got something that's a little bit different. It's a collection of apps, and you're familiar with all of those apps. It's called PortableApps.com, and it's portable versions of various Windows apps. So you can get Firefox, Chrome, Thunderbird, all those sorts of things, and run them off of a thumb drive. Yeah, our mutual friend that you work with told yeah. me about this 
a while back. Yeah, it's really it's handy. really handy, and I've actually got a thumb drive here that I use for uh, you know, detecting spyware, detecting uh, various forms of malware, defragmenting disks, um, deleting files securely, and also just so that I have a tool chain that's available for me. So if I have to get on somebody's machine and I don't want to use IE to look at something, I want to use Chrome because I need the debugger, I can plug this thumb drive in and I have Chrome. So I can run it off of here and it it really works pretty well. Uh, sometimes it can be a little bit slow. I found that uh, things like running Clamwin, which is an antivirus, or uh, Spybot Search and Destroy, which is for finding adware, can be a little bit slow on it, but it's it's nice to be able to just plug that in and run it and you know come back and get your thumb drive later because thumb drive drives are pretty cheap even in you know, pretty large sizes so you can have a few of them that are preloaded and you're pretty much good to go so it's a it's a pretty handy little tool and there's I think there's several hundred apps at this point uh, yeah it's 300 so uh, check it out and you can get it at portableapps.com you will need a thumb drive. The initial install is pretty quick. There's a package manager, so you can pick you know which of several apps that you want on there. It's actually got a pretty good selection of games, too. Um, I haven't really played any of them other than uh, Atomic Tanks, but if you want a, a lightweight you know, thumb drive you can carry around and actually have some games on it, this might be the way to go. If you have a question or comment for us, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed under Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is OMFG Hello by Argo Fox and is also licensed under Creative Commons and available on SoundCloud. For references, show notes, and to sign up to our email list, be sure and check out the website at www.completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time.